0: Hey pull up a chair. It's Hacks on tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy.
1: Putting a national lockdown, stay at home orders is like house arrest. It's the it's the it's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. Okay, that was Trump campaign manager uh, Bill ba- Oh, oh. Attorney General, uh, he, Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, talking about uh, about stay at home orders uh, due to the COVID uh, pandemic and comparing it to slavery. There's a lot to talk about there. Uh, there, we'll come back to that later. But I just want to welcome in our old hackaroo, uh, John Heilman, uh, back from the road for the circus. Hey, brother. Good to see you. Aloha. Good to see you, too. And for a first-timer, but an old friend, Matthew Dowd uh, from ABC News of late, but also uh, the strategic uh, uh, brains behind two George Bush elections, or one of the strategic brains behind two George W. Bush presidential elections. Matthew, good to see you.
0: Great to be on with both of y'all. Thanks.
1: So... Yeah, that was a crazy uh, little deal with Bart. He said a lot of crazy things yesterday. We'll, we'll get to him, but yeah, it's just much, like
2: it's just like slavery. It's like slavery, except for like the, an, the lynching part and the.
1: It, just an extraordinary attempt to weave together two bad narratives for Trump, at once. Uh, it's sort of incredible. He's um I do I want to spend some time on Barr, uh lately, but we're but we're we're in the pandemic, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. One hundred ninety seven thousand uh people dead now, uh and the president of the United States uh had uh, quite a bit to say about it yesterday, including uh slapping down, uh, you guys his um, his CDC. Uh, Director, for suggesting that the vaccine would not be uh, ready in time. And uh, I I think we have a little of that sound as well.
2: Dr. Redfield confirmed that it looked like November, December, the
1: first doses would be able to be uh, distributed. But then he said that the vaccine for the general public likely would not be available until probably next summer, maybe even early fall. Are you comfortable with that time? No, I I think he made a mistake when he said that. It's just incorrect information. And I called him, and he didn't tell me that. And I think he got the message maybe confused. Maybe it was stated incorrectly. No, we're ready to go immediately as the vaccine is announced. And it could be announced in October. So is there no law against uh, practicing medicine without a license here, especially in a president? But he seems to be doubling down. You'd think... uh, after the after the Woodward disclosures that the, that he'd be chastened, but Trump's thing is to double down on everything. Well, he did the thing the
2: other night too, David. You know, with uh, with Matthews' coll- colleague George Stephanopoulos, where you know he questioned the wisdom of of, of the mask thing. And you know, I th- I think about it this way: you know, Trump the, w- among the big narratives of the last six months of the pandemic has been Trump's cold war with his with his his medical scientific public health advisors, right? So we've, we watched, you know, would he fire Fauci his jealousy about Fauci's approval ratings? Those guys would sometimes he, Fauci and Burks would have prominence and then they'd be mothballed right now. They're sort of mothballed again, Yeah, but we she's on some
1: sort of, they sent her on some endless tour of America now. Right.
2: But there wasn't a hot war. And like yesterday it felt like, like we, we reached a new phase here, six and a half weeks to election day. And the and the and covid still very much in front of everybody across the country, still thinking about it a lot, the campaign being fought on that terrain. And here's Trump deciding to wage a hot war with his CDC director. Um, I just I can't understand the politics of that, like how he thinks that that's a good look for him to be fighting that battle at this moment when he's going to try to convince Americans to trust him. When he does the thing that he's telegraphing, as much as he's telegraphing, trying to invalidate postal ballots is I'm going to have a I'm going to have a a vaccine for you guys before Election Day. Um, I just don't understand how that builds confidence and credibility with the American people or how it helps his cause.
1: Matthew, you you read a lot of polls. Um, Everyone that I look at um, says this is a a big problem for him, that he doesn't have trust uh, on this issue and particularly around the vaccine. Uh, you know, there's just a great deal of skepticism. Uh, I mean, where's he going with this?
0: (laughs) Well, I I think every time we try to attribute some broad strategic, you know, cerebral strategy to Donald Trump, we're on a fool's errand. Most of the time we're trying to figure out, I mean, most most of what he does is just says things because he knows that there's a large segment of the population that if he says them, you know they're just fine with how he says it. I actually think this whole last twenty four forty eight hours surfaces a much deeper, bigger problem um, that exists today in America, which is basically the death of expertise—the idea that we that knowledge that everybody's opinion has the same value. So if Donald Trump speaks about medical stuff or he dismisses his generals or whatever the thing he happens to be his opinion matters as much as a doctor or a scientist or whatever. That's concerning, obviously exceedingly concerning when you no longer put a preeminence on science and knowledge and basically decide, you know, that, that all opinion are equal on all topics, no matter who's saying it. And um, I don't think the majority of the country feels that way, which is why the polls are reflective of where he is. I mean, I, I think Donald Trump... In a place, in a time in America, when the one of the major issues and crises is facing our country, COVID, um, you would think he would try to prove out competency on that issue. And each step of the way, he he proves out the opposite of competence on the issue. At a time when that is going to be, will absolutely be one of the top three issues on election day of why people are voting and what they're doing. But he proves out the opposite.
1: But I'm but but I'm uh, specifically on the politics. he he's clearly driving toward announcing a vaccine. I mean, we've been saying this for months here that he would do that. He's clearly driving toward that um, and uh, yet he is creating, I mean, you kind of need this is one area where the polling at least and even among some of his supporters reflects, um the fact that people actually do want to hear from some experts that it's okay to put this in their arms and uh, take a risk from it. And there is a very strong uh, point of view that's reflected in polling that if he announces it early, that that will be a fundamentally political thing and they would not trust him. I mean, you mentioned Fauci. I think I've said this before here. He's going to need Fauci's about to become the most important guy in the world to him because if Fauci turns thumbs down on an announcement and says, actually, it's really not ready to go, that's a big problem well, for yeah. Trump.
2: And and here's the and, and here's the thing that's so crazy about it. Again, you know, Trump is like the least subtle, you know, <laughs> the least subtle political creature I any of us have ever witnessed. Right. You know, he said he's basically saying he's attacking Biden and Harris who say we don't trust their. They're in the difficult position for Democrats of saying we don't trust Trump on the on the vaccine, which, you know, it's it's an it's a a line that invites Trump to say you're rooting for failure. Why are you not rooting for success? We're trying to fast track this thing. Project warp speed. You know, you guys, why should why shouldn't we be rooting for for Mm -hmm. us getting this vaccine as quick as possible? So it puts them in a little bit of an awkward position. But then you have Trump trying to claim that it's not driven by politics at all as he keeps talking about how it'll be ready on that special day yeah no it's like, no question like in what in what world does election day matter in terms of whether a vaccine is ready or not it's just another day on the calendar right so it's it's transparently political and and i i just i you know trump would have a strong argument for being be, full speed ahead on the on the vaccine cuz most americans want the vaccine a safe vaccine as fast as possible but as soon as he starts pegging it to election day,
1: it raises all the questions of like, what is the motivation? You're right, though, that Biden, I mean, it is tricky terrain because you do not want to appear to be rooting against uh, an early uh, vaccine. Uh, you know, that, that, is, that is a bad look and it would be a bad thing to do. And Biden went out and addressed that yesterday, but he did uh, finish up um, on the issue of trust. Let's listen to that. So let me be clear. I trust vaccines. I
2: trust scientists. But I don't trust Donald Trump.
0: At this moment, the American people can't either.
1: Matthew, what do you think about the way Biden is handling this?
0: I I thought that was the exact right tone and words to use in this, because I think that falls exactly where the country is. Most of the country is, Mm -hmm. which is, is I trust scientists. I trust a vaccine. I don't trust Donald Trump. That's where, and look at every poll and every aspect of this. That's where the country is. So I thought it was pitch perfect. I think he could repeat that about a hundred more times, over and over again, that exact way he stated that. I think the problem with the vaccine, and I've talked to a lot. I live in Texas, as you know. I was up in Michigan for two weeks, um, and I talked to a lot of folks, both Trump people and, and people that can't stand him, and in Colorado where I was. Um, there's a real question in many people's mind whether or not they want to take the vaccine when it first comes out anyway. Right, 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 and this right. this is separate and apart from what they feel about Donald Trump. They don't trust Donald Trump, a lot of them. But there's also a whole bunch of people like, why would I be the first batch of people to take the vaccine right. uh, when I don't even have any idea if they understand it? And so I think there's a, we already have a large number of the population that won't even take a flu vaccine, which has yes. obviously been around for years and years and years and sh- improved its effectiveness. There's going to be a vast majority of the country when this first comes out yep. is not going to stand in line and get a vaccine for COVID. Just not.
2: We're we're doing uh we're doing the politics of COVID on the circus this week, right? We're in production this week. So Alex Wagner's down in in Georgia yesterday in Atlanta, and she's doing she's talking to people on the street about this question. African Americans, and one of them said this thing that sounded totally like I. am speaking for I'm sure millions. Where she said something like, "I don't want to be. I want a vaccine." I don't want to be first, and I'm only going to see it after all the politicians have taken it, and, and I'll see if it's safe. <laughs> I'll see if it's safe once they've taken it. And, 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 and at the same time, I'm down here just to complicate this thing a little further. I'm in Florida yesterday, right, which we can talk about more if you want. But here's this thing that just popped up as I le- as I left the state of Florida to come back to New York. Uh, Trump Trump's hotel, the Doral Hotel in Miami, is hosting an anti-vaxxer conference on October 8th to 11th. Called AmpFest, that's co hosted with QAnon, which will oppose any COVID 19 vaccine. So it raises the question, right? Donald (laughs) Trump, that's part of his base, right? The QAnon people are, you know, Trump, we've seen him court QAnon, certainly not denounce QAnon. And the anti vax movement is going to be, in addition to all the other people who have reasonable concerns about being first in line to take this vaccine, the anti vaxxers are going to be four square against this. And a lot of those people are Donald Trump people. So I, I mean, I don't know how to unravel that up piece of politics if you're Donald Trump, but it's going to be a really complicated moment. It's not like everyone wants a safe vaccine. Everyone wants it as soon as possible, but that is not an open and shut case. That you just announce it the third week of October, and everyone's going to be like, "Hosanna, hail Donald Trump!" He brought us right. The I vaccine. think that yeah. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> I, I will say this: he seems pretty comfortable living with cognitive dissonance. I don't know that he's <laughs> that 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 worried about that. <laughs> That's his resting state. I was with uh, your uh, our uh, mutual friend Carl Rove uh, yesterday, and what Carl said was that. You know, to the extent that the virus recedes and it becomes less of an issue about health and safety and more of an issue about the economy, that it becomes more uh, navigable uh, for Trump. Um what do you think about that because the fact is there the polls are showing a little bit of a shift. Um now we don't know what's going to happen in the fall a, a lot of the scientists are fearful that there's going to be a resurgence in the fall and certainly if you live around a college campus it seems that way. Uh but um do you think that it's possible that this thing will age well for Trump between now and election day?
0: I think the likelihood is low. I think Carl I think Carl assumes which has not been borne out by history of issues when they arise in presidential campaigns, that later positive news changes wholeheartedly months of negative news, right? And what people have a tendency to do, as you know, David, and you know, John, they have a tendency to settle their opinion over time. They don't. It's not like people like, oh, I woke up today, I feel better because COVID, there's only 400 deaths today and not 1,000 like yesterday. They basically decide this is how I feel about something and this is how I see the president and this is what I see that it would have to be an immense state of positive news in the next basically two weeks because people are already going to begin to vote. They um, are ballots voting, yeah. are going, yeah. the ballots yeah. are going out. Yeah. That the, the ability to change, this is a little bit like 92 when all of a sudden the economic news started getting better about six or seven weeks out. And then the Bush folks were all pushing the idea the economy's getting better, therefore why change? And voters had already locked into sort of how they felt about it and we're going to move on anyway. That's, I think, what's happened to Donald Trump in this. I don't, I, I, I want to talk about the polls. There's a great, incredible stability of in this race. People talk about its close. Well, it's closed from, you know, 7.6%. He's, behind to 7.1% behind or whatever it is, it, it's tremendous to believe. We should always look at Donald Trump's approval rating because the approval rating is the most determinative number in a reelect campaign. It's the most determinative number in a reelect campaign. Every president for the last 50 years on election day gets roughly their approval number that they gone into election day. Through all of this time, the quote, so quote unquote tightening, states changing, all of this kind of stuff, Donald Trump's approval rating has basically stayed at 42 or 43% and has not moved. It never went up in the conventions. It hasn't gone up on positive news on a jobs report. It does not change. And that's Donald Trump's biggest problem is his approval numbers do not change.
1: Yeah, 43% on the average as we sit here uh, today. These battleground states, you know, people, well, let me just get something off my chest. Uh, that's What's the point of having a podcast if you can't do that? Please unburden uh, yourself, David. So I invite I, will, you. <laughs> I wake up this morning to this story in the Times about, and the reason it bothers me so much is because I've been on the other end of this bedwetting By Democrats.
0: Yeah, I read the same story and had the same reaction.
1: I mean, for crying out loud. First of all, they're complaining that Biden isn't active enough. The fact is, he's been out almost every day. I mean, he is going out. He is doing things. So they're like weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks late on this story. It reminded me, George Mitchell, the old uh, Democratic uh, leader in the Senate, uh, once said that the only people who believe Republican talking points are Democratic senators and uh, it's a little bit that way with Democratic activists and donors and so on. I mean, they're buying Republican talking points. Biden is out there, and he, I think, is being pretty strategic about where he's He's certainly going to the battleground states. He is, uh, he is parrying with Trump pretty effectively. Uh, I've been critical of the Biden campaign in the past, uh, certainly in the primaries uh, and in the early part of the general election, but you know, he's sitting there with a, a a cash, a significant cash lead, which nobody would have predicted. He's outspending uh, Trump uh, by a huge factor on television in all the battleground states. And he's out there in a the campaign. Everybody relax, man. The battleground <laughs> states are close because that's why they're battleground states. Right. If they weren't close, they would not be battleground states. That's right. the definition of battleground states. But when I look at these states, I see Biden at 40, 48, 49, 50 or over 50. Yeah. And the question apropos of what Matthew said is, if you're sitting there with a, a low approval rating, where's the ceiling for Trump and how high can he go? Uh, and where can he not get beyond? Because there are no third party right. candidates to speak of to drain votes the way they did in these battleground states in 2016.
0: Well, yeah. well, let me, let me, let me, before John says, I just want to re I just want to pile on with what you said, because it <laughs> brought back, it brought absolutely, I love that. It, it brought back <laughs> trauma that I've experienced related to the same topic. So in 2004, when I was chief strategist for the Bush reelect campaign, most of my time and emotional energy was spent on those kind of people. It wasn't spent on how do we deal with the media? It wasn't spent on what do we do to prepare for debates? It wasn't spent on like, what is our message should be in our political ads? It was dealing with usually county chairs, usually and donors, county chair, and donors, and donors, and donors, 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 who, who question every single thing you do because you're not running it like a state rep that ran sometime 25 years ago that ran a campaign like this. And we weren't running the presidential campaign like, you know the the state rep in Orlando or wherever that we were making a huge mistake and we weren't doing this and we
1: weren't doing yeah. this and we weren't
0: doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it 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 is the it is the most difficult part of a job.
1: It's awful. It's awful. I, well, listen, I, listen, guys. I, there's gonna be there's
2: gonna be a lot. Listen, we've all seen the Democrats bedwet more than Republicans. Republicans bedwet also. And the bottom line is that this election, particularly this election and again i make fun of the democratic bedwetting as much as anybody but at this election given the given how just you know everybody we know this everybody in the country especially the activists feel like the future of the world is hanging in the balance and we don't disagree that there are a lot of very high stakes in this election so i just think we should get used to it like if you don't like the bedwetting get out of the bed because we're going to be soaked in in urine for the next 6 weeks because the both because you know democrats are going to be flipping out every single every single day. I agree with you, David. I totally agree with you, everything both of you guys just said, but I don't think it's going to stop it. People are going to find reasons to be freaked out about Joe Biden on the Democratic side every day between now and election day. They might be freaked out after election day because half of the thing the Democrats are freaking out about is, are they ready? Do they have enough lawyers? Are they ready to fight multiple recounts at once? How are they going to get Trump out of the Oval Office if he refuses to leave on January 19th? People are, I mean, I, you know, people are flipping
0: out about stuff that's 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 five months down the road. They're already past election day. This is something that I think I agree with you. I agree with you, John. They're going to keep doing it. Keep doing it. I almost tweeted out this morning the idea of like just get ready for the next six weeks. There's going to be 22 things happen. They're going to totally change the nature of the race every day. They're going to totally change the nature of the race every single day. Something's going to happen that changes the nature of the race, positive or negative for Biden or Trump. It's going to change the nature of the race. I think the media does a really piss poor job most of the time. On this on this topic. Yeah, they way over focus on the micro and way under focus on the macro. Well, this is a presidential races are decided on the macro level, not the micro level.
1: You know, the way these things get covered, every event is treated as if it's a decisive event. And as you know, there are almost no decisive events. (laughs) There are very few decisive events in a campaign. And you only know what they are uh, really in in the in looking back at them. Right. Uh you know you, it's really really hard to determine them in uh uh in in real time but the thing that has distinguished this race has been its stability. The one thing uh, go ahead Heilman, say what you're going to say because I want to raise the one thing that uh, well, I do hear as legit, a legitimate source of concern but go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to say, you know, to go back to my Florida thing, right? To your point, Matt. Like that, you know, I'm, you know, there's, 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 you know, you, th- this is fed to, again, it actually feeds into your thing, David, about Republican talking points. So I'm talking to Susie Wiles, who runs the Trump campaign down there. And she's talking about how much better ground game they have in Florida than the Biden campaign. That Biden's got no one here on the ground. And she's showed me their list of volunteers and door knockers and, you know, all this stuff, right? Those, you know, they, they've they been, you know, Florida matters a lot to Trump. It's in his head. He, he's, it's his home state now. She said that there's a Trump family member in the state almost every day of the week. That's how, like, of all the battleground states, Trump's most focused on that one, right? And it was also 2016. That was when they started to realize that they might win was when the Florida results came in. So Florida, big deal, right? She's battleground. You know, we got the stronger on the ground, right? But to go to your point, I said to her, I said, I said, Susie, I said, in 2016, Donald Trump won 58% of seniors in in, in Florida. And right now, in this latest Monmouth poll, he's at 49 it's lost nine points. And that's not just Florida. We see it across the country. Trump's support among seniors is cratered. Biden's has, has been much stronger. And it, we, it's got to be part of it. It's got to be due to COVID's a large part of that, right? There's a bunch of other factors. But like you look at that and it's, yeah, look, Florida is going to be close to your point, David. It's a battleground state. But if you look at the, I mean, it's like you, you hear the Trump campaign basically say, we're going to win it because we have a better ground game in Florida. I'm like, really? Like, That your ground game is going to overcome a nine percent drop in your among seniors in Florida. That's the kind of thing that only a bedwetting Democrat believes is a problem. (laughs) And and like if you're if you're actually paying attention to the stuff that matters, you're like you're like Donald Trump is. If Donald Trump drops nine points with seniors in Florida, he is fucked. He's going to lose that state. And I don't care how many door knockers you guys have and how many how much better your ground game is in the I four corridor. You're going to lose that state.
1: I'm not sure how much seniors in the age of COVID are going to uh, appreciate trump door knockers anyway (laughs) so uh i'm in the basement man stay the fuck away from my house yeah Yeah. maybe biden should send trump door knockers to the seniors in florida (laughs) um you know but one one thing relative to seniors and suburban voters who everyone is watching trump uh, Biden obviously doing much better with suburban voters than Hillary did, particularly suburban women. And the strategy, Matthew, that they have lit on is this law and order strategy. That uh, you know, if you elect Biden, there'll be hordes of uh, uh, of uh, marauding people of color at your doorstep, and you know the suburbs will disappear, uh, and so on. Axios had a poll today that said you know people who feel uh, that they are safe. In the suburbs, uh, are overwhelming. You know, twenty point lead for Biden. People who say they feel moderately safe it, it, it are much more uh, divided. But there's all kinds of noise on this. But you and I have been around a long time. We've both been involved in 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 campaigns where race uh, was an issue, where race was invoked, where those primal forces were stirred. Um, how? How concerned should Biden be, in your view, uh, about this as a resurgent kind of potential problem for him? Well,
0: I, I think it's one of those those uh, I think he should be concerned about uh, a developing storyline that says, would he, you know, would he contribute to a an America more to an America that and he needs to frame it like this, that it's divided or more of an America that's united. I mean, I think that's how Biden must frame it. I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. All of these comparisons, people keep making the comparison to 1968 and Richard Nixon's strategy right. of law and order. They, of course, leave out the important point, which was <laughs> the incumbent president, president was a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah, right. The Senate was Democratic and right. the House was Democratic. And so the you can run out of law and order and things are bad in America and I'm going to change it because I'm a different person. Um, I don't get the Trump strategy. Everything the Trump strategy seems to be doing is driving up the wrong track numbers, Right. It, it it keeps he keeps saying things are bad here and they're bad in portland and they're bad in minneapolis and they're bad here and they're yeah. bad here all that does is say okay the country's off on the wrong track well when the country's off on the wrong track they're more likely to consider an alternative than they are the incumbent and that's why i'm less i think biden has to handle it in a way and he has to speak to it in a way that he's much more capable of unifying and bringing a country together than dividing it but i'm less concerned about like the idea that protesters and things are out of control. If I were the incumbent, I would be more concerned about it than I would be as the challenger.
1: You know, uh, we talked about Barr earlier. He was reported to have urged his prosecutors to not only prosecute uh, people who are arrested for uh, rioting uh, with the appropriate charges, but also for sedition. Uh, And uh, it does make you wonder how big a role uh, Barr himself is going to play uh in the closing weeks of this campaign in terms of bringing indictments uh you know russia stuff this kind of stuff in terms of intervening on uh voting issues uh he is completely i mean he's completely identified himself as a a kind of political apparatchik and he arrogates to himself like listen to this uh uh Jeff, play the, 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 the bite from Barr about his powers uh, from this extraordinary event at Hillsdale College last night. Under the law, all prosecutorial power is vested in the attorney general. And these people are agents of the attorney general. And as I say to FBI agents, whose agent do you think you are? Now, I don't say this in a pompous way, but that that is the chain of authority and legitimacy in the Department of Justice. He uh, he doesn't say it in, in a, a pompous, pompous way. way. He says yeah. it in a kind of an authoritarian way. I yeah, In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's sort of a it's sort of a thuggish,
2: terrifying, <laughs> auto, autocratic way is what he says. he says it.
1: I'm sure that those FBI agents and the uh, and prosecutors were under the misplaced assumption that they had sworn an oath to the Constitution yeah. uh, and, uh, and expected, expected to be asked to follow the Constitution. But I, I don't know that we've ever seen a situation like this where you have as thoroughly political an attorney general in as fraught a time. And I'm wondering what, what that's going to mean down the, the stretch of this uh, race. And I would say not just so,
2: A, thoroughly political. B, utterly ruthless, and C, incredibly effective. I mean, it still is, to me, one of the most breathtaking exercises of raw political power that I've ever seen in 30 years of covering this stuff was when Barr seized the Mueller report, mischaracterized it, lied about it, framed it in the way that he wanted to frame it. And then withheld it from the Congress and the public for weeks to allow the the narrative to get set that Trump was not guilty of collusion and not guilty of obstruction. It was just an extraordinary thing. And he did it in it was, you know, he did it over the way he played it over the weekend, understand the timing of it and yeah. how hard it would be for Congress to come back to try to challenge him. Like he was tactically, right. strategically, every way. I so I I am I think it's a terrifying prospect. You know, he's in Michigan right now. Not this like an accident. You know, the Gretchen Whitmer, the bill there to try to strip Whitmer from her, her strip her authority to manage the state on the question of COVID and the and the shutdowns, that's what's going on in Michigan right now. He's there in that state where that where where she has been at the center of all that controversy where there are
1: armed militia people who came well, out. Well, I think he'd refer to it as an anti slavery mission. Yeah, <laughs> that's
2: exactly right. <laughs> but like but I mean but even there he's 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 like there in michigan on a polit- the the timing of that whole thing he's there on Listen, a poor, no no, poor no that,
1: there's no pretensions in, about this the question the question though is what kind of harm uh, what kind of mischief in the short run but the harm can they do
0: i mean the harm is huge in lo- in the long yes. term and the harm to basically the perception of the country about constraints on power oh, that's huge in harm in the short term i think the democrats should worry less about what he might announce before election day because I think that will be discounted to a huge degree Mm -hmm. by most voters. But I think what I would worry about is what does he do on election day and And the the overtime and the overtime. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No. And I think that he will, you know, one thing that he has proven is he's completely unrestrained. I mean, he does not feel um, any compunctions uh, about doing whatever he needs to do uh, to advantage the president in in a situation where there's going to be a lot potentially. A lot of confusion. Who doesn't who doesn't think that on election on election night when the vote
2: on the election day vote in Pennsylvania, let's say, favors Trump and Trump stands up and says, I won Pennsylvania, and people say, Well, wait, all the ballots aren't counted. And Trump says, Well, I already told you the mail-in ballots are, are illegitimate ballots. There's a lot of fraud. But to make sure that there's no fraud I'm sending the federal marshals in to collect those ballots in, in Pennsylvania. You know, who's who doesn't think that that's a scenario and that Bill Barr won't have his the federal marshals ready to go to impound those ballots on the day after Election Day? Who doesn't think that's I mean, I could I could do 20 of these scenarios. Right. But that's a you know, that's that's a that's a to me, you know, a highly plausible scenario that could play out and could play out in any of the battleground states. Uh the, on the day after the election and i don't think yeah Bar- and the
0: only and the only way around i mean the only way around that way they they would try to game it and this it is it's the margin that what is the margin if trump loses what is the margin of, by which but joe biden wins is all is i tend to think is important is as almost as important as winning is what is the margin because i think it becomes incredibly imp- if all of a sudden Joe Biden starts winning places like North Carolina and Florida, and I think part of this is we're going to see signs of the problem. It's it's not going to be the traditional states are going to tell us what the election is doing. Have no problem doing this. Have no problem, and if those right. started going right. going against Donald Trump, right? Then I think you're okay. But if right. that doesn't happen, then it's a problem.
1: Right, and that I mean Florida looms largest uh of all and that if florida were to come in on election night and they have a history of being able uh, being able to handle mail-in votes yeah and uh, they
0: count and they count relatively fast initially
1: yeah and the the polls close early you know, you know how they like it down there. The early bird specials are really popular in Florida. <laughs> you got you to you get to the Red Lobster in time for the early bird specials. So, they so the golden so, corral, the golden if, corral. If they call it, if they call it for, if Biden were to win Florida, I think that would uh, the whole thing will take a different character. That's why Florida. I mean, Florida. It's important because of twenty nine electoral votes, which is a huge number. But it's even more important in the context of this election. But this is the first election. I mean, Matthew, you were involved in two thousand in a crazy uh, election that turned on a uh, on Florida and on a recount. But that is going to look like child's play compared to this. You know, the post-election scenario. Yeah, because you
0: had, you had, you had even under the, you know, you had Al Gore and his team who, who you knew, you know, was fighting for their political life, but you also knew that they believed in a system, they believed in a process, they acknowledged certain things, they would accept decisions, they would do all that. There's nothing on the Trump side that says they'd even come close to accepting any decision by any authority unless it goes with what they want.
2: Yes, there was no world yeah. in which you thought that the Clinton Justice Department and FBI were going to roll into Florida and yes. see and impound the ballots. Exactly. When the recount started, because only we at the Justice Department are could possibly count these ballots in a fair way. You never, like, never even occurred to you. But that, you know, that was an incumbent. I mean, it wasn't incumbent on the ballot, but it was an incumbent administration. That never, it wouldn't have been a fantasy you had. Your darkest fantasies
1: would have involved that. One guy who did roll into Florida. Back then was Roger Stone, Stone, who created a lot of mayhem uh, uh, down there um, to to try and advantage the the Republicans. He you saw he you saw his visit to Alex Jones. Uh, uh. So did Ted
0: Cruz. Ted Cruz rolled into Florida too that Ted Cruz created a lot of mayhem in Florida in 2000. He was down there screaming and yelling at voting things. Don't forget Ted Cruz.
1: all right we'll uh, we'll we'll note it my point I is, is, wanna, my point is right I, now my, my point is right now. Stone was on the Alex Jones and he was saying if if uh, Trump loses, it will have been stolen from him. He should declare right. martial law. He should jail the Clintons and others who uh, have uh, who have violated the law. Uh, right. I mean, it, it's really crazy stuff. And here's Bob Bar, uh, Bill Barr talking about sedition relative to the rioters. Uh, now, well, how about nothing? That that sure sounded seditious to me uh, and dangerous. Uh, telling people essentially, either our guy wins or it's, it's, it's time to impose martial law. Well, and, well Dave, David, I think,
0: I, I here's a big concern I have and go back into sort of getting it writ large. I don't think everybody understands how large a percentage of people in the United States don't respond to institutional democratic principle arguments. Right. There's a large percent of people that every time somebody says, this is off the democratic norm, these are not our principles, this is, doesn't follow what we've, you know, the Constitution, there's a huge percentage that that, that doesn't matter.
3: Right. They're that if derives.
0: they, all they, winning and getting what they want and um, uh, getting somebody else angry is, is more important. so every time I hear people talk about, we're, we, we have this system here and the system is it, there is a huge chunk of the American public, unfortunately, that doesn't care.
1: Yeah. Well... The question is whether that's a majority of the American public. I mean, that's a little bit of what's on the ballot, uh, I guess, in in, uh, in this election. You know, I'm sitting up here in Michigan, and so I, I, I'm one of the privileged Americans who get to see all the campaign ads because I'm in a, one of a handful of states, or at least partially contested. I guess Trump isn't running many ads up here. But I saw an ad the other uh, day that I think is running nationally uh, by uh, Biden. I don't have the sound. But essentially, it was an assault on Trump on uh, social security uh, that was really pretty effective. And if he's running it in Florida, I'm sure it's effective down there. He's running a separate ad on healthcare care uh, and uh, uh, that is part bio, but very much about securing health care for people. Pretty effective. He's got this, as I mentioned earlier, this huge mon- monetary advantage. Um, how much in an election, uh, where so much of the vote is probably, uh, locked up already, how decisive do you guys think, uh, that advantage on the airwaves is going to be, um, for, uh, for Biden? Does it make a difference?
0: Well, David, you and I have had this conversation, I think before, and maybe I've had it with John is, is I've, I've often argued that there's a diminishing return on paid advertising in presidential races um, because so much is fed through the free especially,
1: media. Especially, I, that I agree with you completely, and that's been especially true after Labor Day when yes. the intense coverage becomes so, become so yeah, intense. You,
0: yes, S- but uh, with this exception, and we've done, we at Bush in 2004 or through 2000 did a whole bunch of studies on ad buys and all of that. The, the exception to that rule, it doesn't matter if one person's running 900 gross rating points in, a, in, the, in the Grand Rapids media market and somebody else is running 1,050 or 1,100 gross rating points, it all sort of washes out and it doesn't matter. But it does matter if somebody's running 3,000 gross rating points in a media market and somebody's running 300 gross rating points in a media market. And if that advantage uh, holds and if Biden is doing that, and he's running a, uh, a two-to-one, two three-to-one number of ads, that could have an effect. It yeah. doesn't normally have an effect well, because the other, usually there, there's competition, the, but there's another
1: we'll There's another issue. Uh, first of all, he put $65 million of ads up this week. That's a, a lot of ads when yes. you know, spread across the battleground yeah. states. But uh, the other issue is COVID and how that has changed people's viewing habits, and are, there, right. are people more uh, apt to be uh, home- uh watching uh, watching TV and so on. And in the absence of as a the kind of aggressive campaigning that we're accustomed to at this moment, do ads have more influence than they would have had in a normal election cycle? I, I don't know, I still you're yes. still going to get the yes. big coverage. So it's still the, the, the rule may still apply, but I, I have to believe this is a bit of an advantage uh, for Biden
2: it's high. I mean, look, all those things are highly speculative and we don't know the answers. We have our intuitions that, about them, but, but that doesn't, that's what we do us. here. We I bullshit I know, and sound authoritative. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> it's one of the, yeah. one of the, one of the main, one of the main glories of this podcast um, is a baseless speculation. It's too bad Murphy's not here. He's got like a doctorate in that, but, 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 but here's, but here's the, but here's the thing is that like here, well, here's, here's how it seems to me. It, it just kind of self-evidently matters, right? I don't know about whether the advertising is going to move very many voters but look you know trump's behind you know yes the broke guy is behind like he's got to make up ground and right now they're having to make hard choices about with scarce resources about where to invest where not to invest that's like you don't want to be in that position ever if you're an incumbent but you really don't want to be in that position if you're an incumbent and you're behind in every battleground state and and you had hoped that you would maybe try to go make a run at Minnesota or at Nevada or at New Hampshire. Like where's the money coming from that's gonna get you back to level in the six main battleground states, which which you, you you're you've been behind in it all year long. Now you've also got these other states, you were the reach states where you thought you might be able to shift, you don't have money to go do those things, and you've got Biden just reminding you every day that they don't have to make those choices and they're on the air all over the place. And I would say in these last six weeks, you know, if the if the if the disadvantage, if the disparity continues, which there's no reason to think it won't, all of a sudden the Biden people will be in a position not, you know, not enough in a, in a ridiculous flagrant way. But, you know, maybe you go and start to put play in Georgia, you know, and start to make the Trump people make their choices even harder about where they want to go and where they have to have their back because you know those Georgia floor polls still show the race of dead heat there. There's just like there's all kinds you guys know this better than I do, but like there's just all kinds of advantages
1: that come with
2: being ahead and having a financial advantage. Yes both that's those just, things are so,
1: good that is that's my professional analysis yes. <laughs> that being ahead and having more money is it's a, right? a more desirable uh, position. so before before we get to the mailbag, uh, I, I I just want to finish on this. And we're going to be talking a lot about this uh, in the subsequent shows between now and then. But we're 12 days away from the first presidential debate. Matthew, let me let me just start with you, because you've been involved. In... Tell me tell me what you what you're thinking if you're Biden and what you're thinking if you're Trump going into that debate. What are your strategic imperatives? And and by, and, and let me add, who who is the, who has the more pressure here?
0: I was thinking a lot about this in advance of in the town hall that was just held, um, because it, I compare the the presidential campaign to like the Tour de France and the town halls like a time trial where you're just competing against yourself, hoping you don't slip the pedal and crash. <laughs> yes. But the the mountain stage is the debate, right? You're you're you're, in, in, and that is the where the real work needs to be done. And the first debate to me is always the most important debate of all three is always the most important. You can recover and you can do certain things. So to me, and it's the last of the big things that can actually adjust this race are the debates. Outside of something unexpected we are unaware of, the debates are the last real mover, Mm -hmm. possible mover in this race. So to me, I always look at this is what is holding Donald Trump back right now? And I said this before the Republican conventions. I said this before the town hall. D- Donald Trump is not going to gain much ground by beating up on Joe Biden, even though they think otherwise. And even though they keep doing it, Donald Trump only gains ground. If he improves the perception of himself, that he gets the country to see that he's doing a better job at things than they already see him doing. Cause fundamentally his ballot number is tied to that number, that the approval of himself. So to me, They didn't do it at the Republican convention, which is what I always said, how you should, they didn't move his numbers. He didn't do it at the town hall. He didn't improve his number on his. So the first debate is the challenge to him for me is strategic challenges. What does he do to demonstrate competency that would cause some percentage, three or four or five? He doesn't have to move it a huge amount, but three or four or 5% of people that disapprove him to think that now approve him. That's his biggest challenge. Joe Biden, to me, has to the, the the argument that is tended to sift through on joe biden is is he too old and is he competent enough to and, and, and does he is he can he make meet all the challenges so i think joe biden's strategic challenge is just to show the american public you know that he can respond to all the questions deal with it he has vigor he can do all of that and if he does that he meets that challenge for me the key moment for joe biden is is going to be how he handles donald trump's chaos on debate stage
1: yeah
0: right and donald trump's going to throw all kinds of insults he's going to insult joe biden he's going to say all yeah. things and if i were joe biden i wouldn't respond to anything that attacks on him but he will attack somebody that joe biden cares about
2: oh well that's the thing that's i mean just and just, if he
0: attacks yeah. his son or his wife or somebody that he deeply cares about. It's gonna be a moment that could be very powerful for Joe Biden. And basically Joe Biden, in that moment, not defending himself, I would just stay away from defensive self. I would do a how dare you, how some how dare you have you no know, dignity, sir moment. That to me is the opportunity for Joe Biden. When Donald Trump does that, Hillary Clinton never did that well. She never showed that well. Um Joe Biden can easily do that, but it has to be somebody he cares about.
1: Well,
2: he's gonna he's gonna attack he's gonna attack Bo Biden. There's no doubt about it. And I think that there
1: are two things to say
2: Beau about Bo Biden this. or Hunter Biden? Uh, while well, I think about. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant Hunter Biden, although he could yeah. well attack, he could attack Bo Biden also. Well, th- that could. would be a
1: tragic mistake
2: for Trump. <laughs> well, well, yeah, as you know, as you know, they, they, you know, there's, there's discussion in the Trump world about, you know, did Bo Biden really earn some of his medals and like, you're going to see that before this <laughs> is over. I, uh, there's, you're gonna, I promise you guys, I promise you no, you're that's really see. productive. You're thinking you were, I didn't say it was productive. I'm just, tell, I'm just telling you it's, I'm telling you it's going to come. Um, but here's my question about that, right? They go after Hunter Biden. I ask you, David, because I mean we both know Biden pretty well. I, I, you know, we saw him the other day after the 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 losers and suckers story came out, mm-hmm. right? The, the Goldberg piece. Yeah. When when Biden was on fire that Friday when he did that 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 basically yeah. I'm a blue star, yeah. like he was very good that day, yeah, right? My son wasn't all,
1: a sucker, yeah.
2: Right, my son wasn't a sucker, but we know that Joe Biden has. That he's not always in control of his emotions when it comes to his family, you know. That's just a reality about Joe Biden. He can be, he can, he is, he's, he he takes it very personally and takes it very seriously, and sometimes doesn't have total modulation about it. So I wonder whether, on the basis of everything you saw in him working with him really closely, I mean, I've covered him for a long time, but I wonder when that moment comes, whether it's a slam dunk moment for him in defending Hunter Biden, or whether there's some. Reason, I mean, they will obviously practice this like crazy yeah, in debate, uh-huh. but but whether you think that that's you know, is there some there's some jeopardy there?
1: I think you know everybody everybody's strength is their weakness. Biden is a very authentic guy. If he if he's angry, his anger will will show. It'll be hard for him to uh, control it. Um, you know, first of all, let me let me just respond to uh, Matt, Matthew on a couple of points. One is. Mm. Um, you are right about trump that that's what you would do if you were if you were able if you had a precision instrument uh <laughs> that is not donald trump and my guess is that donald trump will be exactly who we've seen he's gonna come up and he's gonna and he's gonna make well the- you
0: would ask me what should their strategy be, no i understand No, you, you answered the question uh and
1: <laughs> but the the reality is if you're if you're biden and preparing for trump you got to prepare for the guy we've seen in all these press conferences yep. and he'll hit the same points that he's been hitting and his fundamental message i think is going to be i think he may attack people who are close to biden i think he's going to attack biden and he's going to attack biden as weak and feeble and part of the establishment and unable to to uh you know unable to handle the mo- that that is that is what he's been uh, that is what he's been and biden um you know uh the question is does it just become a slugfest you know and or does or can Biden modulate and pick his spots where he engages with Trump and pick his spots where he uses Trump's behavior as an example to the country of why we need change. And that, you know, w- we'll, see about that because sometimes, you know, Biden is a basically a, 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 very nice person. It's not his, you know, he, he always looks slightly uncomfortable when he goes on the attack and it can seems kind of forced now it may not with Trump, but you don't want to look like Clint Eastwood in uh, Grand Torino chasing the kids off the lawn, you know. That's and that's what he has to. That's what he has to. Uh, that's what he has to avoid. I'm going to stop it there because going be, there's going to be a lot more conversation between now and the 29th uh, about that here. And we do have to. Uh, I,
2: I did think you were going to say you don't want to be Clint Eastwood on stage at the Republican convention. That's where I thought you were going, with Clint Eastwood. There, not <laughs> Gran Torino, like having a conversation with I'm an empty chair. I'm just trying to show my cinematic. I'm trying
1: to. I'm trying to. Uh, show my cinematic chops here. Great movie, by the way. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, let's take a listen to the mailbag music. It's listener mailbag. Thank you, Mike Murphy, for providing uh, that uh, to us. I am going to start with a question for you, Matthew, uh, from Alex, who says the Trump campaign who are clearly willing to kill a few people to aid the reelect... It's an editorial judgment. There are knocking on millions of doors. The question I have is whether door knocking continues to be an effective campaign strategy with so many already decided and increased ability to use text message to connect. Is door knocking obsolete? What would your advice be to the Biden campaign to balance public health with voter engagement and mobilization?
0: The answer to that question is, is I I think door knocking works exceedingly well in low turnout local elections. I think it's very good. I think it works really well in uh, – it doesn't work at all well in persuading people. Nobody that's a persuadable voter wants somebody to knock on their door and tell them to vote a certain way in a presidential race after they're probably sick of what they've heard. And so I, I my view of this is that – The people that don't want Trump are motivated. The people that want Trump are motivated. I don't think knocking on another 1,000 doors or 2,000 doors is going to change that. I actually think we're going to set records on turnout. I think 150 million people will vote, which is the first time we've ever hit hit, hit that number. Um, (sighs) And when that happens, I don't think door knocking or somebody's piece of mail or whatever is going to make any difference in this election.
1: So 150 million I guess instinctively you'd say, well, that's probably good for Biden. You see all this um, research in these battleground states that suggest. I think the journal did a piece on a on a uh, Brookings study that said that the more, there were more inactive uh, kind of non college white voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania than um, uh, than voters who were more likely to lean uh, in Biden's direction. Hundred fifty million. If you were Trump, and if you were Biden, uh, how do you feel about that number? <laughs>
0: well, I, I'm not a I'm not a believer that it just because the number is high, that means therefore it benefits the Democrat and it benefits the Republican. There's been a lot of research on this that shows that there is very statistical advantage for either party in a in a lower turnout and a higher turnout we've the history of these elections i think it totally de- it doesn't help joe biden that an extra three million people turn out in california and new york right so if there's huge so i think it's all a question of of where it is and among who right and, and if college graduates are a higher percentage and if my uh, uh, people of color are a higher percentage and if younger people is a higher percentage, which I actually think it's going to be, um, then I think that's a benefit to Joe Biden. But it completely depends on the composite, not the total number in the electric, the composite of it.
1: That's absolutely right. The proportionality matters. But you've got to believe if it goes up that high that um, it'll grow on both sides.
0: Well, look at the midterm election. Look what the turnout was in the midterm election. And that was driven by to a large degree about people that didn't want Donald Trump. But there was also a huge amount of pro-Trump voters that... I mean, I think Donald Trump will get get more votes than he got last time. Donald mm-hmm. Trump will get more votes than he got last time. But if 150 million people vote, um, him getting more than whatever that... You know, him getting three million more votes doesn't help him if all of a sudden there's 80 million plus on the other side. Yeah, I
1: think he'll get more than he got last time and he'll lose the popular vote than he, uh, by more than he did. The I last agree with that. Hey, Both uh, of those things I think will happen. Heilman uh, Lindsay says, when I hear you analyzing the race, you seem to assume most voters will make a rational decision based on available facts. That seems like a fair assumption. I'm not sure we make that assumption, but my friends who are text text banking for Biden keep getting responses from people saying they won't vote for Biden because he's a pedophile. Of course, he's not. But with the popularity of QAnon and other conspiracy theories, uh, is assuming voters will vote based on reality, the political mistake of 2020. Will we be surprised by how many votes are cast based on an entirely alternate false reality?
2: Um, well, that goes to actually the thing you just said, David, which is like, I don't think we make that assumption at all. And in fact... I I I think that you know if 2016 uh taught us taught us anything and I don't mean that the outcome was irrational although you know you could argue but look th- I think we have only begun to scratch the very very early surface of the fake news uh flood um and it is true I see stuff about Joe Biden in my feed and I'm not like living out on the edges of of social media reality here I see stuff uh related to Biden's uh, the kind of thing that Lindsay just referred to, I see it all the time. So, you know, right now we didn't really understand how much how much social media garbage, fictitious narratives. The Hillary Clinton has Parkinson. Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. has MS. Hillary Clinton is you know is uh, is the sa- is the spawn of Satan. The stuff that got amplified in key districts and key states uh, around uh, through Facebook, largely. We didn't really understand it. It's really hard to track. We didn't really understand it until after the election in 2016. And I just I would bet every dollar that I have that there's going to be more of that.
1: The FBI director uh, said today that the uh, that the Russians were very, very active. Yes. And that they're but, pushing false narratives about Biden.
2: Yes. but and, and, and my point, though, is that, you know, you've seen. Facebook, Twitter, the other social media platforms say that they're combating it, say that they're policing it more, and I don't actually doubt that they're doing more than they did in 2016. But I think the commensurate rise in the volume, not just from Russia but from other foreign actors and from the fringe right in particular, right now, which has become so active mm-hmm. in those social media, there's just going to be a shitload of those kind of images, those kind of memes, those kind of conspiracy theories. And I, do I do I don't couldn't begin to speculate on what the net net of that out is, but but you know this this notion of biden as defective in one way or the other whether it's the straight trump narrative of and all the spliced together video that 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 they that they pedal relatively above the waterline of like biden is being yeah. senile not being able to string two sentences together that's stuff the trump campaign and its allies do again relatively in plain view you add that to the crazier shit out there i, I you know I, again i can't say whether it's going to be determinative there's going to be a lot of it though and i think Only in retrospect, we're going to go back and see just how much there was and what effect it had, particularly in some of these battleground states on -hmm. the margins, on the margins and in motivating some number of these non-college whites who didn't vote in 2016 that the Trump people are focused on.
1: So a guy named David wrote, wrote to me and said, David. Uh, you have often mentioned how you missed the Trump win in 2016. <laughs> did you send this to yourself? Did you send this to yourself? I just want to make sure I got a question. Uh, David, have you, you've, you've often mentioned how you missed the Trump win in 2016 by not uh, seeing the significance in all the Trump signs in your neck of the woods in southwestern Michigan, how did the signs stack up uh, there this year? They're, uh, you know so far they're they're here but they're not as numerous as they were in 2000 uh 16 i was ju- just up in northern michigan around the traverse city area i was surprised to see a bunch of biden signs up there um, uh many more numerous than i than i thought um you know i i don't know uh, i don't want to put too much into the signs but um nothing i've seen uh detracts from my view that michigan is likely going to fall in the democratic column uh this year i don't see the same kind of uh fervor uh i see fervor but i don't see it in the numbers that i did uh, quite the same way uh four years ago it's actually my wife who saw it and reported it to me uh and uh, she was right and i was wrong uh back then listen guys we're short on time i want to have one last call on behalf of all of us and i think you'll enjoy it uh Let's have the last call bell.
0: It's last call.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, cue up that uh, cue up that Churchill uh, tape.
3: I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be.
1: So, guys, I wanted to end on that just to remind people what leadership in a crisis sounds like. You know, the president has a bust of Churchill in, his, in the Oval Office. I, I wish he'd give this a listen because this is what it sounds like. And uh, it's what, what the country needs at the moment. Anyway, Matthew Dowd. It's great to have you. I hope you come back uh, often.
0: Ask me anytime. Always good to talk to you, David. And you too, John.
1: Yeah, brother. Good to have you as well. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, and and I want to recommend to everybody John's new podcast. Say a word about it, John. Uh, it's a podcast called
2: Hell and High Water. You can find it on everywhere you get podcasts. I'm like digging deep on this big fucked up apocalyptic moment that we're all living through the, the subtitle of the podcast is, uh, is, is uh, Politics and Culture on the Edge of Armageddon, and I'm talking to not really mostly political people, but entertainment people, business people, technology people, people whose lives and careers have been transformed by the pandemic, the recession, r- the racial justice movement, and trying to figure out like what the fuck has happened to all of us and how to get through it and, and come out the other side intact. Right. Maybe, you-
1: maybe even better. And you can see him on The Circus. Uh, Matthew, we'll see you on ABC. Awesome. And I'll catch up with you guys later.